A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. I'm Sandra Winka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Well, hello, folks, and welcome back to The Past, our second US Open relived episode of 2021, when we will be traveling back not too far to a time that even Matt Roberts remembers. We're traveling back to 2015 and Serena Williams' failed attempt to complete the calendar slam at the US Open. Of course, she already held the Serena Slam at that time. And that's probably something that is overlooked because of what ended up happening in that semi-final match with Roberta Vinci, that truly incredible semi-final match with Roberta Vinci, which I've just watched highlights of this morning. It was a very, very fun way to start my day. David, this isn't far enough in the past for you to be sort of grinning like a Cheshire cat. What's your level of pumpedness about this <laughs> oh, it's, pod? It's pretty high. I still find myself grinning. And the reason is that I realise how much I'm capable of forgetting in the space of six years, which I really didn't expect to have done. I thought I was... To be honest, when, when we were doing the, the, the short list of US Open relived op- options that we were going to have our guest editors choose from... I probably wouldn't have had this one at the top of my list at the time. And now that we've, we're doing it, and now that I've researched it a bit, I'm really glad we're doing it. Um, <laughs> helped by the fact that we've got the most incredible guest editor. Um, mm. But again, I just feel like I, I hadn't really quite saved in my mind just how dominant Serena Williams was. And when I started to go through these the the results that that you that Matt and and Chris Albert Lee had accumulated and and saw some of the footage and started to remember being on site at the time and what I was thinking and and feeling about Serena Williams's dominance, it made it all all feel actually this is really something now that we need to talk about particularly now. Mm, it's timely, isn't mm. it? Yes, it feels it. I I will spare the listeners the explicit tag by not reading out the messages that David sent to the tennis podcast group when it emerged that none of our guest editors had chosen 1991 Jimmy Connors run to the semifinals. 
Correct. Wasn't describing Chris Albert Lee as a top bloke then, were you, David? I was. <laughs> but uh, the, the, actually, the funny thing is that uh, when, when I was doing the research for Marit Safin the other day, I did end up down the rabbit warren and, and, and watched the Erin Krigstein, Paul Harhouse and Patrick McEnroe matches from 1991. <laughs> YouTube knows us all so well. It's yes. scary. Uh, Matt, where were you in, in 2015? Well, I, I think I've told this story before on the podcast. I was in Italy during this whole tournament, actually, which was quite a big moment for me to agree to go away during a Grand Slam and not be glued to my television for the whole two weeks. Um, I was on a little interrailing across Italy. Uh, we did Venice, Florence, Pisa, and then ended up in Rome and... Um, I would say I saw this match, but I didn't watch it, if there's a difference between those two things. I, I was in a, a restaurant in Rome, and it was on, and sort of gradually it became more and more of an event. You know, I think I was just drawn to the fact that it was still on, because Serena hadn't finished it off, and then eventually everyone sort of ended up watching it, and it was it was a great atmosphere and very memorable. And um, yeah, Italy was kind of the place to be that US Open, if not if not in New York, because obviously this was the first... Was it the first all-Italian Grand Slam final in history, I think, mm. between between Panetta and Vinci in the end? So, yeah, it was, it was great. Um, I actually snuck out of the hotel on the final day of that holiday in the dead of the night and ended up in an argument with the receptionist who thought I was leaving without paying. Um, <laughs> but actually my friend was still in the room going to pay the bill later and I was leaving in order to catch the first flight home to get back for the lunchtime Fulham kickoff um, <laughs> <laughs> that's my life really planned around sport did Fulham win that game from memory I think it was an underwhelming draw with Blackburn <laughs> oh wow <laughs> right uh, well we we've we've uh, we've hinted at the truly incredible job that our uh, guest editor and top bloke and executive producer Chris Albert Lee has done on this podcast but it really I'm not sure there are words that can capture the guest editing job he's done on this podcast I mean he's basically done the podcast for him what you're going to hear is us just reading out a transcript of the mind of Chris Albert Lee (laughs) which sounds like a just a wonderful place to be I mean he is to say he's done us proud and all of our editors this year really have done us proud we've been blown away but this is this is I mean you you need to get yourself on mastermind Chris or Chris Albert (laughs) Chris um Chris yeah I know you need to get yourself on mastermind and this needs to be your specialist subject because it's it's a work of Matt, by your standards, which are the highest thereof, how would you describe this research job? It's brilliant. It is so impressive. I was I was sort of both thrilled it was excellent and, you know, also a touch annoyed because it, it, it sort of <laughs> left me with not much to do. There were really so few gaps to fill in. Chris had, Chris had really got everything and structured it very well. And I think what he did is he built the agenda to put in all the background so that you really understood what a big deal this was for Serena. You know, I think this match in isolation 
is a thrilling match, but knowing everything that comes before it just increases the magnitude of it, I think. Mm. Yeah, in a couple of months, we'll be getting on, him on to uh, deliver some hot takes about Karen Hatchinov that don't age very well. And by <laughs> next year, he'll be uh, a regular fixture on the pod. Um, so, yes, you mentioned the context. That is, that is, I think, the area that we've all really enjoyed being reminded of, I think, because we all remember that match. We all remember Serena going for the calendar slam. We all have been thinking about it in particular recently, I think, because Djokovic is going to be in the same position in a few days' time and because we've just had the news of of Serena's withdrawal from the US Open with this hamstring tear that she sustained at Wimbledon. But the context is so important, isn't it? And I think it's that that is, has faded more in in our memories and... Her sheer dominance leading up to that point, leading up to the summer of 2015. She's she's absolutely on top of the world, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, looking at this uh, this list of stats, even just the list of them between 2012 Wimbledon and 2015 Wimbledon, winning eight of the 13 Grand Slam titles, 61.5% of the slams played over that period. <laughs> She has won. She's lost five matches at Grand Slam tournaments out of seventy-four. Um, I mean, and, and and the thing is, I was trying to think. Well, am I am I misremembering this this period? And so I went I went back and looked at, for instance, her U.S. Open run because I mean she's coming in as the three-time defending champion, and and the years that she she'd won it when she faced Victoria Azarenka in the final. Only Azarenka could get anywhere near her. She's beaten everybody else in straight sets, just just hammering them. Um, and if you think back, I mean, when we when we started the podcast and we 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 were just having Patrick Moratoglu coming into the the team, and and she went. That's when she started her her period of total domination. And she's she's won Olympic gold. She's won three straight WTA finals Chris reminds us from 2012 to 2014 and every tournament you came into there was some sneering really from the media because of well there's not much point in watching the women's tournament because Serena Williams is going to win it which which was a really lazy take that some would have but uh, I mean credit to her for being just that good and that much of a champion Uh, and I think in recent years what's happened to my memory is that I've that level of dominance has started to fade for me in my mind and it's blooming useful to be reminded of it Mm, she was so dominant it it prompted the the worst the worst take in tennis podcast history we don't need to go into details but I blame I blame Serena's imperious dom- dominance for my terrible terrible take. Go <laughs> hmm. on, Matt. What was the take? <laughs> <laughs> the take was um, that it was. I mean, I, I really struggled to get these words out because because I know I know how much pain they cause. The take was that it was a foregone conclusion that Serena mm. would win Wimbledon in twenty thirteen, but. You've helped me out. You've helped me out here with the notes because she was, she was at the end there of a of a thirty four match winning streak. Sabina Lezicki beating her at that Wimbledon, 
ended a 34-match winning streak, which is the longest of her career. I mean, that take was crap and regrettable and embarrassing because it's sport and nothing is a foregone conclusion. But if you were ever going to do a crap take about anybody, it would be about Serena circa that period, wouldn't it? Because she was she was just that mm. brilliant. I think what I find amazing now looking back is Serena was already 30 at this point. Almost 10 years on, it's quite normal for the top players to be winning a lot in their 30s. It still wasn't really that normal in 2012. I think Federer obviously won that Wimbledon as well in 2012 and Serena won that Wimbledon. But at that point in time, this is a stat from Chris Albert Lee, Navratilova had won three majors in her 30s. Chris Everett had won two. Margaret Court had won three. And Virginia Wade had won one. Serena would go on to win 10. You know, she just completely changed what was possible to achieve at that point in your career. And there are lots of reasons for that. There are lots of reasons why modern players, I think, are able to extend their careers. And we probably will see a trend towards players, top players, winning more into their 30s as as the years come. But she has raised the bar dramatically. She's not just inched it up. She has sort of completely put it kind of beyond anything that anyone will probably do in the future. It's it's a remarkable period of time, this, from Serena Williams. And, um, yeah. And actually, I think the point you made there, David, about how, you know, it sort of prompted that discussion about, you know, just too much dominance. One of the things I really like about the 2015 season is that I think it was a period where people really realised how extraordinary Serena Williams is and what she was achieving. Because before then, there was this kind of, well, if she loses, it's an upset. And if she wins, she should win. But I think in 2015, maybe for selfish reasons, people like seeing history in real time. They like seeing records broken. But also, I think people wanted it for her. And um, there was... There was this, you know, crystallization in people's minds that this was an extraordinary thing that Serena Williams was doing. On the age thing, there was there was such an amazing line um, from Serena Williams in the in the in the very brief but actually very good post match press conference that she did after the loss to to to, to Roberta Vinci um, when she's mostly what she does is just heap praise on Roberta Vinci much of her life, incredible tennis, all of which is absolutely true. And she says, she pauses for a moment. It's probably her most sort of thoughtful, not thoughtful, I mean, it's all it's all thoughtful, but it's all quite quick and rushed and there's an urgency to it. She wants to get out of there, but she takes a moment with, the, with this answer about Vinci and she takes a beat and she goes, you know, she's 33 years old. It's really amazing that she's, She's produced her best ever match at 33 years old. And she goes, I find that really inspiring, actually, <laughs> which is which is an amazing line in hindsight. I mean, who you know, that might have been just a throwaway, a throwaway platitude. But, you know, knowing what we know about what Serena went on to, to do in her in her 30s and even in her mid to late 30s, um, I really I really love that line. Um and yeah, you know, she's coming into that US Open 
already having completed the Serena Slam as the three-time defending champion. And that 2014, that third consecutive title at the US Open, was that her most dominant run to a title in her career? I mean, it it feels like it in my memory. I don't know whether the, the stats about sets and games lost. I mean, there were no sets lost, were they? No sets lost, and she didn't lose more than three games in any of the sets. She beats Caroline Wozniacki in the final, and just, yeah, I mean, she crushed everyone. It is one of her most dominant performances. And actually, I I went back and I watched uh, the highlights of, of some of that and also of the 2015 Australian Open. And actually, it was a really good exercise because, you know, just as David said, we can have short memories in terms of what a player is like at the time. And obviously we've seen a lot of Serena recently and it feels like every time we've watched her in these last two or three years since her comeback, we've been assessing her level of play and sort of scrutinising her movement and you know, just trying to figure out where she is tennis-wise. And let me be clear, everything Serena has done in these last two or three years since she gave birth has been remarkable, reaching four Grand Slam finals, playing the level of tennis she has. But I was reminded watching these years back of just how far away she has been from that level. This is peak Serena in terms of, and especially the movement. You know, she is hitting powerfully out of the corners, doing the splits almost in in defence and just covering the court with such speed and athleticism and you combine that with her just ability to hit a tennis ball at such speed and with such precision and she is so dominant and I think it was an important exercise for me just to remind myself of how great Serena Williams has been I mean that that sounds like an absurd thing because of, of course we should know we've been watching it for 20 years but just the most recent memories are the ones which which sort of stand out. So it, it it is good to go back, I think. That US Open win in 2014, of course, brought her to 18 Grand Slams and it brought her level with with Chrissy and, and, and Martina, Martina Vratilova and, and Chris Evert, which, <laughs> yes, was big, but <laughs> everybody, including Serena, immediately started looking to the next record at that point. It was a huge record, but it wasn't the record. And there are some absolutely brilliant quotes from from Serena that, that you've dug out, Matt, about about that record and the records that she was next to turn her attention to. Are you thinking about 22, she's asked. No, I'm thinking about 19, which I'm kind of disappointed. Haven't even been three hours and I'm already, I've already mentioned 19. Oh, gosh. So, yeah, but not 22. I'm taking it one at a time. Brackets smiling. <laughs> and also, um, we'll hear from Mary later, but Mary was telling me one of the stories that, that she mentioned was was being given a note ahead of the on-court presentation for that 2014 title to say that um, we're going to be having... Martina and Chrissy come onto the court for this moment because she's just you know she's just drawn level with them and uh, and Serena knew nothing about that knew nothing about the fact that they were coming out and was really bowled over by it um and I mean you know that 
that I've always thought that that is the all-time rivalry in so many ways, isn't it? More than 70 matches between them and to finish on 18 apiece. And here was Serena finally getting to that mark. And and I was reminded looking at all the notes just how long that that had taken, how difficult that had been to get to that point. And then suddenly she starts accelerating away. Um, and I think that that's why even even though they were difficult tournaments to win. They weren't all plain sailing the, the 2015 Grand Slam titles that she won. The, the feeling is that this is not going to stop. That was the, that's always the thing with somebody who's dominating. Well, how's it going to stop? And there was not a sign of it really for, from, from those of us covering it. She said, I'm already looking at 19, maybe. So I'm not thinking about it as much as much. I think once you do become a little satisfied, once you do, you become a little satisfied. That's in reference. She was asked to reflect on her own place in the game. She said, I've said this before. I don't want to become that. I want to continue to rise and continue to play really hard and do the best that I can. And boy, did she do that because that 2014 US Open ended up becoming the the first leg of the Serena Slam. She goes into the 2015 Australian Open, which she ended up winning. And the Australian at that stage was the only slam Serena hadn't won since she started to work with Patrick Moratoglu before 2015. Her last title there was in 2010 and she hadn't been beyond the quarterfinal since. And that must have seemed like an age in Serena time. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, the rate Serena wins slams to have not won one for five years is is an eternity. It really is. And I think um, she she lost one year to Sloane Stephens, didn't she? I think in 2014, she lost to Anna Ivanovic. Yeah, she she couldn't figure out the Australian Open. And she had some, you know, she had some struggles in it. In this edition, she was a set down to Svitolina in round three. She was a set down to Muguruza in round four. Those were, you know, both of those players were really emerging and improving all the time around around this period. And then she gets to the final, and and she's up against kind of kind of her favourite opponent, really, Maria Sharapova. And it's it's a great match. It's a it's a tough two setter. Um, but of course, Serena ends up winning it, and you know she's she's suffering from a really bad cold. She has difficulty breathing. There's a there's a 12 minute delay in this match to put the roof over the court, and Serena said afterwards that she threw up in those 12 minutes, and you know it it did help her feel better. It helped sort of clear her airways and helped her breathe better. But what really stands out to me in this match is Serena's serve. She hits 18 aces in the match, 15 of them in the second set and you know just when she needed it when she was struggling a bit physically she was able to rely on that serve and all the key moments it's it's a very very impressive performance and sort of as soon as she wins that she's won two majors in a row and immediately the question is Paris and I I thought that was an interesting parallel with Djokovic as well this year. I, I remember that from the Australian Open. A lot of his press conference was, and it was stirred by Goran Ivanisevic also being in the press conference beforehand, saying, look, we're, we're targeting the slams this year. We're going for Paris. And 
Serena said then she was going to play a lighter schedule and Djokovic said the same thing this year. And that kind of got me thinking as well, because you sort of think the logic would say that when you're younger would be the time when you could go for the Grand Slam, when you've got all the energy to burn and when you're just trying to win everything. But it's interesting that the two we've, you know, the two only shots at the Grand Slam since Steffi Graf did it have been from Serena in 2015 and Djokovic this year, both in their mid-30s. And, you know, maybe there's something to be said for that experience and that ability to prioritise tournaments and not have to worry about just winning everything and turning it into a, a focus from the start of the year. There's just... Just an interesting similarity there, I think, between Djokovic and, and Serena. And four days after after winning that Australian Open title, and I remember this vividly, she announced, announced in Time magazine that she would return to Indian Wells for the first time since two thousand and one, uh, when she was when she was booed and and racially abused after after Venus pulled out of their semi final with a, a knee injury. Um, just to remind you a, a little bit of that history um, with with Indian Wells, here is a quote from Serena's sister Aisha speaking about what happened that day. She said, "As a family, we were all hurt. It stayed with us a long time. Our parents have always been very clear about who we are in terms of the country, but to have evidence of that, it was a disillusionment, the end of any innocence that we had about the world we lived in." Um. Yeah, and and I've I've watched back that that footage, and it is horrible. Um, her return to Indian Wells was a, a massive, massive story. Um, yeah, she Serena on that subject said, "Everyone always asked, what's your greatest moment in tennis?" And I always said it hasn't happened, but I think it has happened now, and that was going back to Indian Wells and playing. It released a lot of feelings that I didn't even know I had. I was really surprised at how emotional I got and how relieved I felt after everything was said and done. And it's extraordinary to think that in the midst of this all-time great year, and even with the loss to Roberta Vinci, it's one of the all-time great tennis seasons. You know, she won four slams in a row, going back to that 2014 US Open. She also took on this incredible emotional mountain that she didn't need to that year she could have picked any year to return to Indian Wells and she picked that year Um, and I'd love love to know why then but to think that in the midst of all of that winning and all of the pressure um, and all of the focus that would have been required to achieve all that she also took that on and describes that as her greatest moment in tennis I find that amazing yeah me too. Um, this did come up in the research I was doing for this episode, actually. And I read the piece by Scott Price in Sports Illustrated after she was named Sports Person of the Year in 2015. It It's an incredible long read on Serena and the return of Serena to Indian Wells forms quite a big part of the article. Um, and the article basically says that there were lots of motivations behind her return. Um, To quote, Williams saw a film about Nelson Mandela and began to reconsider. She almost played Indian Wells in 2014 and backed off. 
but over the next year she approached her parents and three sisters one by one about a return in 2015. She went through three drafts of her time essay, took one to her dad last fall and choked up trying to read it aloud. Finally, she just handed it to him. Hardly anyone in the family loved the idea. Venus and Richard weren't ready, not yet, to accompany Serena to Indian Wells. I wouldn't have gone back, Oracine says, not because I didn't forgive them, because of my own integrity. If they didn't think I deserved to be there, then I don't need to be there. If just one sister or parent had outright opposed her returning, Serena says she would have thrown the essay away. But Richard said it would be a mistake for her not to go back, and the rest chimed in because they sensed how much Serena needed it. Part of this was unfinished business, the sense that Serena's legacy had been tarred by events beyond her control, and part was her Jehovah's Witness faith. I was brought up to forgive people, Serena says, and I felt that I wasn't doing what I was taught. And then the final factor pushing Williams back to Indian Wells, Scott Price writes, was more complicated. On August the 9th of 2014, an unarmed African-American 18-year-old named Michael Brown was shot six times and killed by a white police officer, Darren Wilson. The body lay in the street for four hours. For many, the shooting highlighted yet again a pattern of abusive policing and seething mistrust between white authority and black communities nationwide. It sparked protests and furious debate. And on the 24th of November of that year, a grand jury voted not to indict Wilson and Serena tweeted, shameful, what will it take? Um, So I think Michael Brown's story really resonated with Serena. She said, I've been a teenager at Indian Wells and that was hard for me to go through, especially when I was thinking, it's 2001, I shouldn't have to deal with that stuff as much anymore. Now fast forward to 2015 and we still have young black men being killed. Someone needed to do something. And I thought then that there was something greater than me and tennis. I needed to go back there and speak out against racism. So, yeah. There's obviously a big backstory to it, a lot to it, um, but absolutely, just as you say, at a time when she's going for something so powerful on such a personal front, chasing the kind of Grand Slam, for her to take on this wider issue as well is completely remarkable. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. 
Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. What she went on to do, the, the way she was able to sustain her her form and and to peak and 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 it struck me when she was coming into to paris reading the the results she had and the memories she got about her losses you know that she was still bothered by certain losses individual losses and and she was able to almost a bit like the way nadal does compartmentalize these tournaments so that it wasn't about trying to win however many it was about trying to win this one it's about the achievement is let's see if i can win paris let's see if i can win wimbledon and get a lot out of that whilst also having this this goal this wider goal because she wasn't well um during the uh the semi-final in in paris i think she was unwell throughout the tournament wasn't she i, I remember i was i had the role of uh, moderating press conferences at that at that French Open, and I remember coming in, her coming in for, might even have been her pre-tournament press conference, but certainly one of the early ones. And she didn't talk about being ill, but you could you could hear in her voice that something wasn't right. And there was a real stir afterwards. I remember all the journalists flooding out of the interview room, and there was a sort of, did you did you hear that? She didn't sound right, did she? she did, what, what's going on there? She's not she's not quite right. And it was a real focal point throughout that tournament, as I recall. Yeah, totally. She had so many three-setters, I think the most three-setters she's ever played on en route to winning a slam. And, and in the first four of those, she had to come back from a set down against Annalena Friedsam, Victoria Azarenka, Sloane Stevens, and then Tomea Beshinsky in, in the semi-final. And uh, yeah, John Wertheim wrote in, wrote in Sports Illustrated that, you know, she was sometimes staggering woozily around the court and spent the changeovers swaddled in ice towels and and Serena herself said she was in her bed shaking. She had a 101 degree fever. I think she even told a tournament referee that she might have to pull out of the final. You know, she was in a really bad place physically and yet <laughs> she still won. Um, I think Chris Everett said, I'd have pulled out <laughs> with a 101 degree fever. And that's the one, actually. I think I think it can get lost a little bit, but that is... That she won the French Open, feeling like that on the surface, which doesn't suit her game the most. That that's the one, and I think when she did win it, that was when talk of the calendar slam really picked up. Um, it was mentioned in all the pieces written after the tournament. It was she was asked about it, 
in her final press conference and uh, she said well yes halfway to the grand slam but also three quarters of the way to the serena slam just reminding everyone that she'd already won the u.s open and uh, and i think martin and avrasilova sums it up really by saying i'd be more surprised if she didn't do it than if she did and and that's how it felt really covering the sport i mean we've got our own we were we were well into producing the podcast by then and and they were just going down like dominoes, these things. And, uh, I mean, she she went uh, and, and completed that second Serena Slam. I mean, I think it's worth reiterating that the first one was completed in 2003, um, 12 years, 12 and a half years before she managed to do it. I remember doing an interview with her for the BBC straight after she won that Australian Open in 03, when she when she'd won all four. Um, and here she was doing it again by winning Wimbledon. And, I mean, look at the players she's beaten along the way to, to win that Wimbledon. She's beaten Venus, Azarenka, Sharapova, and Muguruza uh, to win that title. And um, that's extraordinary, really. That And that shows because, I mean, Azarenka was the, the, the one that always felt like could get close to her. Muguruza eventually took her took her down, didn't she? In a in a Grand Slam final, Sharapova only ever did it the once, but she just dominated all of her rivals. Mm. I remember interviewing her um, after that after that Wimbledon win, after beating Muguruza in in the final, and I, th- I think uh, I think I was granted two questions with her, and one of them was about her becoming the oldest woman in the open era to win a grand slam singles title um which is which is what she became by winning by winning that title and i can't remember her exact answer and and i i couldn't find the interview but it was something along the lines of well every time i win a slam now i'm going to break that record i'm going to become again the oldest woman <laughs> ever to win a, a grand slam and and of course she did win did win more after that it was sort of an amazing record and also a completely forgettable record all at all at the same time because there was just this feeling and this conviction really that it was it was a a steam train on a roll and we were just we weren't at destination yet we were we were very far from from destination the uh, the hype ahead of that US Open I remember going to that US Open. Honestly, the the men's tournament was an afterthought by comparison. Um, I, I've always thought you get a different level of excitement and anticipation when either Serena or Venus are playing matches at the US Open at night. And when they played each other, it was the best. It was the best experience at the tournament. Um, but that year, that was the year that. The women's final had sold out well ahead of the men's final and the, the price is being charged for tickets because people wanted to be there for for this moment of history that was going to come <laughs> were well in excess of what the men's final prices were. Um and, and we I remember us reporting that and and every round that she that she had on her way through that draw, I'm just reading the names that she beat along the way, uh Dierchenko and Burton's in the first two rounds. Never forget the third round when she played Bethany Matic Sands. I remember I wasn't on duty that night. I was I remember being in a restaurant in the middle of Manhattan 
whilst that was going on and she lost the first set 6-3 and it was close in the second set as well it went to I was I had a little watch of it earlier on just to remind myself and it went to to five all in the second set she's two games away from defeat you and it didn't feel like Matic Sands who's an American a proud American player who's would normally be getting the crowd support didn't feel like there was much support for her and it wasn't personal to her it was just so much that people wanted Serena to do this and then her, you just saw her greatness she just stepped around a couple of shots just slammed winners and the movement out of the corners that you were describing earlier was there and she got over the line in the second set and then won the third six love and from then on she was back to cruise control beats madison keys venus williams i think that i think venus williams actually was a was a three-setter but it all added to the feeling that this is going to to happen and there was there was not a doubt in anybody's mind and um i was i was listening earlier to one of the things they got me doing was to go out and try to speak to people and i got an interview for the bbc with john McEnroe, and he came out with this line he said um he said 98% of the people that are there don't even know who's in the other three positions in the semi-finals. They're only there. And, they're, they're, and, and she was playing Roberta Vinci and it's Flavia Panetta, I think, against Simona Halep in the other semi. And he, he said, look, she's, she's the greatest, one of the greatest players of all time, men or women, probably the greatest. What, if she does this, she's up there with anything that Usain Bolt or Michael Phelps have done. This puts her on her own, really, um, if she does this. When she does this, he says. I mean, it's, it just felt that inevitable. Um, nobody saw it coming. Wow. There's a, um, it's a good piece I found on Sports Illustrated to sort of capture the serena mania that was going on through that tournament it unfortunately it just says written by si staff so I, i'm not sure who wrote it but but they say for the first 12 days the u.s open was the serena rama it was her pursuit of history with a tennis tournament tacked on and it, <laughs> it says when she played venus williams bowl 27 drew a capacity crowd including a celebrity cohort to rival the oscars oprah Trump, Ugh. Justin Timberlake, assorted Jenners and Kardashians were there. Tennis royalty <laughs> from John McEnroe to Martina Navratilova. And it says, as the sisters hugged at the net, it triggered a prolonged standing ovation. and Some of the loudest applause of the entire tournament. The unmistakable message was, we get you, we're fond of you, we appreciate our good fortune in getting to watch you all these years and... And this piece goes on to say that it wasn't it wasn't just the fans that wanted Serena to win. And the author writes, remember how other players once rooted against Serena behind her back, often crowding around the locker room TVs to cheer her opponents? No longer. In New York, player after player admitted to openly rooting for Serena to pull off the slam. Djokovic said, I want to see her do this. And Simona Halep who, as you said, made it to the semi-finals. She she was quoted as saying, "If I'm not in the final, then I want her to win." You know, everyone was pulling for Serena to do this, and and it just felt like she would. Everyone but Roberta Vinci. <laughs> and yet, the the funny thing is that um, 
in and we'll talk about the match in a sec but what i love about vinci is is her on-court interview afterwards where she said you know i just i i, I woke up and i just hope i play well you know i mean it's arena i'm not gonna win but i, <laughs> I just want to play well <laughs> i just love that yeah I mean, she she sort of said it hadn't even occurred to me to win she said i woke up and said to myself just try and enjoy it somehow um yeah, and she did. She looked like she's having the time of her life through that match. I mean, Serena looks like she's she's having an existential crisis for the whole for the whole thing, and Roberta Vinci just looks like yeah, she's just having a whale of a time. She goes into it. I mean, she she was an irrelevance in terms of that match. She was just the opponent. She was just the obstacle for Serena Williams, wasn't she? I mean, and that was before you even brought statistics into it. 4-0 and head-to-head in Serena's favour. She'd never lost to Roberta Vinci before. She'd never even been taken to a tie-break by Roberta Vinci. She'd never lost a set. The worst set that they'd played for Serena was, was six games to four. Uh, she'd beaten Roberta Vinci in Toronto in one of the warm-up tournaments, four and three, just a couple of weeks before the US Open. She'd won 11 straight Grand Slam semi-finals coming into this match, Serena Williams. Basically, there was ab- I mean there was nothing you could find emotionally, anecdotally, statistically to support a Roberta Vinci win that day and Tom Rinaldi in his on-court interview to Roberta Vinci told her that she had been a 300 to 1 underdog going into that match. Now I I simply refuse to believe that's true because in no, a in a in a too. one against in a one against one matchup I don't find that statistically possible. I feel like I could play Serena and have slightly better odds than 300 to 1 because a person can fall over. I feel like there's more than a 300 to 1 chance that someone'll get ill or fall over. Like it's just ridiculous, but the fact that he felt he could put that question to Roberta Vinci, summed up how how implausible that result was, even after the fact when it had happened. Didn't she turn to her player box when that was asked? And uh, I think she said, exaggerati. Which, uh... <laughs> hey, coach. She said, coach, coach, did you hear that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and look, I, I watched this match back yesterday and... There were little things I'd forgotten that Serena makes a bad start. She gets broken for 2-1. And in that game, you know, in in hindsight, there are real signs that Serena's tight. She's not really moving her feet. She's sort of bouncing the ball with her racket in, in terms of trying to hit the tension out of her arm, it looks like. And she's struggling. But she breaks straight back and then breaks again and then breaks again. And she's won the first set. She's ruled off five games to win the first set, 6-2. And it, it looks like she's found her range. She's found how she's going to just overwhelm Vinci. She's sabatiniing the Vinci serve, isn't she? Yeah. She's standing sort of right about a foot, a foot behind the service line. And you kind of think, OK, well, even if Serena's not having her best serving day, she can she can clearly break the Vinci yeah. serve at will and that will be enough. Absolutely. It looks like she's found her game, found the formula and in the 
in the version I watched at um, at two one in the second set, the commentators start playing the game construct the perfect tennis player, you know, <laughs> which is kind of chat that you don't do in a dramatic moment, is it? You know, but, but I think that sort of reflects the feeling they were having in this match. Oh, this is this is over. You know, this is Serena's got this match where she wants. We're in awe of her serve. We're going to pick her in every category for the perfect tennis player. (laughs) You know, it's done. This is Serena's moment. And it's, it's incredible how suddenly it actually flips. Yeah. And, and you're right. Watching it back with the benefit of hindsight, there are, there are, there are little warning signs at, at the, at the start of the match. You know, the fact that she was, she was doing that bent over, pained clenched fist pumps so early on she's she's doing those those celebrations you know at at one all and and I think even before you know she was doing them in the second game of the match and um I remember watching a a Denis Shapovalov match at Queen's this year alongside um Greg Rosetsky and Daniela Hantikova and Shapovalov did a a massive fist pump in the second game or something and both of them did a sharp intake of breath and said he's going to lose this it's it's a really bad sign when you're that sort of pumped up that that early it's an indication of stress and Mm. tension and she wasn't doing that in the third round against Matek Sanz when she was down and came back she it, it was all still very within her and she was just working her way through it exactly but then but then she still wins that set 6-2 and she still, um, I think she was break point down in the opening game of the second set and, and ended up holding. And that felt like mm. the, the momentum, the momentum moment, you know, okay, she solidified. It. Wow. She solidified that, that momentum she's got. And yeah, let's start playing, build the perfect player. <laughs> yeah. And then really the two all game in the second set. Serena's love 40 down. I think, she's, I think she's starting to use the slice to cause a lot of problems and starting starting to not miss herself. I mean, must say, Vinci plays a very, very good match from this point onwards and puts the ball in awkward spots and Serena fires wide with a backhand to go down a break. And it just changes. The whole feeling of the match changes in that moment. And from then on, it's kind of always a struggle for Serena. Um, she has chances on the Vinci serve, but she can't, she can't convert. She, she's sort of setting her, she's setting up the point and then missing the final ball a lot of the time. And she smashes her racket at the end of the second set. And she's so stressed. You can tell. And, but even then <laughs> she goes up a break in the deciding set. Yeah. I mean, I only watched a, a sort of extended highlights, Matt, and I'm very conscious that the unforced errors don't tend to make it into highlights packages. So correct me if I'm wrong, but this is this is backed up by Serena's assessment of the match in the press conference afterwards. Even despite all of that, and despite the fact that she lost it, I don't think Serena played a a bad match. I think you know well, she 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 cites afterwards. She says, "Look, there were there were a couple of points that I could put down to to being tight." But that is entirely normal. That would be in the case in any match, even matches that I that I win. She wasn't really regretful about her level of play. It might not have been her all-time best match, but I had forgotten just how much Roberta Vinci won that match and how yeah. brilliant a contest it was. It's it's an all-time great tennis match. 
Yeah, it's, if you, it's it, that, a glorious that contrast of styles. Well, you've got Serena really coming back at her at the end, trying to throw the kitchen sink, do you know, do everything she can to get back into it, and all the things that I remember feeling were that well, not many people stand up to this. Where if she's going to come on with this, and Vinci's standing up to it, she's going toe to toe, side to side. She's and then she's coming out on top at the end with some incredible shot making and um serena asks all the questions doesn't she she says Mm. can you keep this up and the answer was yes and probably on any other day the answer would have been no but it just happened to be yes Mm. that day yeah I, i think looking back there's there's one game where i think serena let it slip and that was when she was serving at two love she'd already got the break she got the momentum back. You know, it was it was tight. You know, she wasn't steamrolling her way through, but she had the break and she's 40, 30 up and she hits a serve. And I, I don't think she thought, think she was going to get it back. And she slightly hesitates on her approach and thinks she plays a brilliant pass. Serena then makes an error and then double faults on break point at two love and hands the break back. And I think if she holds that game, that feels like a sliding doors moment. If she holds that game, we're all talking about Jimmy Connors in 1991 <laughs> right now. Oh, we're still doing that in the future. <laughs> and then the fifth game of, of the final set is one of the most extraordinary games I've ever seen. It, it, it's, it's two all, Serena serving. And after every single point that she wins, she wins four points in the game. And after every single one, she does exactly as you described earlier, a huge come on after every single point. And then you've got Vingshi down the other end, who's kind of just sort of smiling and laughing. <laughs> the the contrast, watching it now, is to is to watch a completely stressed out player in Serena who is just making such a big deal of every point. And then Vingshi who just looks calm and relaxed. And the contrast is is staggering. I'm sure it probably felt like that at the time as well. At the time, it felt like just part of the process of Serena winning to me right. that this will end up turning around because it always does. You know, I assumed it was just part of that. Um, the, the, there was a, a tell me, tell me the moment that there's the outpouring of emotion from Vinci because there was a moment of defiance mm. from her, wasn't there, in the closing stages, and that, and that always sticks in my mind. Yeah, that set uh, three all. Um, Again, Serena hits two double faults at the start of that game. And then there's an incredible point. And Vingshi finishes it with a drop volley that, that Serena can't chase down. And Vingshi cups her ear and says to the crowd, what about me? What about me? And, and, and the crowd do respond to that, actually. They do, they do sort of get behind her in that moment. And then the next point, Serena dumps a backhand into the net. And then she goes long. And Vingshi has the break for 4-3. And that's a moment where you think, okay, this this could be happening now because Vinci has a lead in the final set. She, she she was never in front. She was a set down. She was in a breakdown at the start of the third, but now she's got the lead. And Serena's tennis is it's okay, but she's not finishing the points. I think Vinci says in her interview afterwards, doesn't she, that her strategy was put it in the court and run, put it in and run, put it in and run, and that is what she does she makes life a nightmare for Serena chipping away putting the ball in awkward spots and Serena didn't have the conviction in her shots to finish them off you know even the points she is winning it feels like it takes 
so many shots to finish Vinci off. And it's just sort of agonising every point that she's trying to win, whereas Vinci's now got the match that she wants. And to do that against Serena is is an incredible feat from Vinci. And Serena has break points at um, 4-3, doesn't take them. And then Vinci serves out the match to love. I mean... With two of the greatest half volleys of all time in the circumstances. Just brilliant half volleys. And I think I thought it was a real, real battle till the very end. But that final game is all Vinci. As you said, two two brilliant drop volleys and just expressing herself. And she she cannot believe it when she's won. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've, we've, we've already reeled off the highlights of Roberta Vinci's... Uh, on-court interview after that win but if you need a pick-me-up ever um (laughs) i i would highly recommend just checking into youtube and watching that because it is it's pure joy isn't it and and the she wins the crowd over doesn't she the crowd that have that half of them probably wouldn't have known who roberta vinci was before that match and didn't care because she was just there to play a supporting role Sorry, they, it's my, they were it's the, my they day. Were the, it's my day. They were in the palm of her hands, weren't <laughs> yeah, they? It, it's amazing, actually. I mean, you'd have to have a heart of stone not to find joy in that Vinci interview. I think even the biggest Serena fans would find some joy in, in, in Vinci's interview there. I think she managed to turn that into her moment, which was incredible. It, it, it's one of the all-time great interviews, actually, because she just gets across her personality um, just perfectly. We'll, um, we'll talk about the aftermath and the consequences and, and the ripple effect um, afterwards. But let's, let's hear from, from Mary Carrillo, who, of course, was, was watching the bat match, was, was commentating on it. Let's, let's hear what it looked like from the commentary box. No one saw that one coming. Vinci didn't hit, see that one coming, David. I mean, Roberta said she had already booked uh, her plane back to Italy for Saturday, for the day of the women's final. <laughs> so, uh, so I think Vinci, Vinci knew that the, it was absolutely improbable that she would beat uh, Serena Williams at, in the U.S. Open on that, on that court. And I always loved Vinci's game. I loved her. I, I just, I, I think she was a very warm, engaging woman. Anyway, she the kind of tennis I like watching with plenty of variety, a lot of touch, a lot of imagination. Um, but I certainly didn't think she was going to beat Serena Williams uh, that day. You know, Serena was two, two matches away from winning, you know, the calendar Grand Slam. And interesting. And But I've always, we've talked about this before, David. I, the U.S. Open is the most fraught tournament for Serena because it's pretty, it's always, almost always the last event she plays of a calendar, of the year, of a season. And she had put so much pressure on herself, you know, to do what hadn't been done, you know, since Grofted in 88. Only a couple of other people had ever uh, won the calendar slam. When Vinci won the second set, Serena smithereened her racket. I mean, it was just one of the big breaks of, of, a, of a piece of equipment that I can remember seeing. And, and then Vinci just held it together. Uh, Roberta said afterwards, I just... She just didn't want to make any mistakes. You know, she didn't want to give that match to Serena. And once Serena lost that second set and you, you could tell she was angry and frustrated, Vinci looked at that too and said, all right, you know, she's nervous. I got, I got a real look at this thing. And man, oh man, she played cleanly. 
uh, in that third set. And she showed every bit of her game in that third set. She hit two ridiculous half volleys, you know, in the final game. She served it out, which is, can you imagine trying to serve it out, you know, to, to finish off Serena Williams at the U.S. Open? Uh, it was joyous for her. I mean, she really, as I said, she's such a warm, engaging personality anyway. But that she was able to kind of tiptoe past, you know, <laughs> Serena Williams, who was trying so hard to put a real dent in the history books. That was something to see. And uh, yeah, she, it was lovely. And then she got to play her great friend in the final. I mean, the whole thing was unbelievable. Uh, it was, um, and then when you look at the, um, it's not like Vinci's got a big game. But it's it's a it's complete in that she knows she knows how to manage things. She knows how to play. She's got very clever, soft hands. Um, she didn't hit a lot of winners, um, but she made uh, only twenty unforced errors. Serena had forty of them. I mean, that's that's a big difference. That's a big difference. Lindsay, who understands the moment very well, she got really quiet, and I just kept looking over at her because I could tell that she knew that Vinci was going to win this match. <laughs> and she didn't say every now and then she'd say a little something. And then she would, we'd go into a commercial and she, and Lindsay would say, I think she's going to win this match. Like she, <laughs> I think she can do it. You know, like Lindsay's smart. She knows what she's looking at. And again, Vinci just played such a clean, efficient final set. She let Serena lose. She let her implode, you know, and sometimes that's something you got to do. You know, you don't have to win a match, but you have to be hanging around when somebody loses it. Yeah, I, I always used to hang around and uh, that didn't happen to me. Me either. But sure, sure. I'll, t- <laughs> I'll, take, I'll take the advice and I'll take it into my future career. Um, so what about after the that match and the 2015 US Open for Serena Williams? Obviously... Roberta Vinci ends up playing her countrywoman Flavia Panetta in the first All-Italian uh, Grand Slam final and, and Panetta wins that and retires shortly afterwards and for Italy it's all just an absolute dream but they've had enough sporting success this summer we shan't dwell on that people remember they don't the, need the se- they the don't need a relived war. episode yeah don't, don't exactly it's, it's interesting i mean i I'm sure Fabio Panetta doesn't care and good you know she won that tournament good for her but it is there's there's no coincidence that this is what we're reliving really this is the match um and actually I I do love the fact uh, we'll, we'll talk about Serena in a minute but I do love the fact that if you look up Roberta Vinci's Twitter bio right now it says former tennis player now I coach and comment on TV once I beat Serena Williams <laughs> And that's what it says. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that is brilliant. I just want to just just to round off the story. I want to put you on the spot, both of you, and I'll chip in as and when it suits me. Um, with Chris Albert Lee's list of what ifs and miscellaneous thoughts and questions arising from analysis of of that. 2015 US Open match he says what could Serena have done differently that day against a stubborn and very inspired opponent and 
I don't know, you know, because she she couldn't decide not to be tight or nervous or not to not to care and play play freely in the in the tight moments. I'd you know, I'd I don't think there was tactically anything she did wrong. Okay, I know she she suggested maybe she could have come to the net a bit more, but Vinci's passing shots were sublime that day, so I don't think that necessarily would have would have changed the outcome. No, I d I don't think there's much that Serena could should regret about the way she played. I I mean I think it's so easy to try and say say what maybe you could do, but it comes down to feelings as well, doesn't it? And what's going on on the other side of the net and whether you can put aside everything that's happening. And I don't think that's realistic, is it? Here's a good one. If this had been a five-set match, would Serena have beaten Vinci? I'd go I mean, yes. Yeah. I would probably say yes. I mean, the thing is, the tightness and the nerves and the stress is still going to come. But you've just got more time yeah. to play through it. It does help, I think. It, or it would have helped had it been five sets. But it's not definite. Quite interesting. In in the end of the interview with McEnroe, um, where we're, we're also building up to the Djokovic against Federer final, uh, one of the questions I asked him was, will a man ever be on the brink of a Canada Grand Slam again, do you think? And he said he thinks it's harder because of the physical toll of trying to do this over best of five four times for seven matches. And actually, I mean, and I, I understand the point. It's only ever been done, I think, three times in the women's game and and Donald Budge and Rod Laver's done it twice in the men's game. I, I kind of feel like it might be the other way around because I just think mm. it's so, you've got so little time to pull it back if you're if you're playing best of three unquestionably you're more susceptible no matter how dominant you are you're more susceptible to an upset in best of three than best of five um Hmm. yeah i I think you can make the case either way definitely yeah i mean serena had a lot of physical trouble that year as as we've talked about at the french open if all of those matches were five sets it might have been harder for her to win that but the flip side she had to get them done in three sets she didn't have the time to recover when she was under pressure that that she would have had over best of five sets it's it's a bloody hard thing to do over whether it's best of three or best of five it's minutiae whether one is harder than the other i think continuing just a little further down the hypothetical rabbit warren do you think serena would have beaten panetta in the final had she beaten vinci her head-to-head against panetta was eight and oh or would would the stress that caused her, or not caused her, contributed to her loss against Vinci, have done the same against Panetta? I mean, Panetta would have it would have been a very different match. She wouldn't have messed her around mm. and asked the questions that Vinci did. That's a good point. Yeah, I think I, I, I think, I think Serena would have won. Serena, I just don't think it would have happened twice. I think mm. if she'd have found a way through this, she'd have won. But I mean. It's just my feeling. Was it how much of an advantage was it or disadvantage for Serena that the fourth leg of that slam was in New York and at the US Open? Will it be easier for Djokovic 
that he isn't playing his home slam. Don't smile at me like that, David. You bloody love a hypothetical. It's me this is painful for. <laughs> it's interesting, you know, in terms of just framing it as the home slam. I've not really thought about that. I suppose it's just the fact that it is the US Open. And as Mary said, that has been a, a fraught place at times for Serena. You know, in 2015, she'd obviously already had the 29, uh, 2009 match against Kleisters, the 2011 match against Stoza, but she was also the joint record holder for most US Open titles. She'd also won it the three previous years. I think we can perhaps sometimes think of New York as this place which Serena really struggles to produce her best tennis, and there have been a lot of moments in New York. She's also done a hell of a lot of winning there, and I think it feels like a leap to sort of suggest that this was caused by all that's come before in New York. It doesn't feel totally irrelevant, but it doesn't feel like the main factor either. I just think she was going for a lot of history and I would expect Djokovic to be stressed this this year as well. I think we're all expecting him to be. I don't think it makes a huge difference where this is. I just think you're up against history and wherever that is, that, that is going to take its toll. It's it's exciting to wonder who could be the Roberta Vinci in this year's men's draw. Because I don't think anybody necessarily expected, well, maybe some people did, but it wasn't unexpected that Serena had a, a rocky and stressful road to trying to complete the calendar slam. What was surprising that it was Roberta Vinci. There was an article on Sports Illustrated before the tournament with five names who could stop Serena from doing it. And one of them was Belinda Bencic, who just won Toronto, beating Serena. Um, One of them was Venus. One of them was Azarenka. I can't remember who the fourth one was. And the fifth one, they made up a player. (laughs) And, you know, they just sort of made up a name. and And it was for... Anyone, just a random person, you know, someone no one is going to pick and maybe it's going to take a freak incident like that. And that is kind of what ended up happening. That's that's it, isn't it? You know, all of the all of the previews and we'll be we'll be doing our own and falling into this trap, I'm sure, on Sunday, you know, about who can stop Djokovic. We'll all talk about Medvedev. We'll talk about Tsitsipas's chance of stopping Djokovic, you know. But in the end, actually, it might be close your eyes and point at the draw. Um, And I know Roberta Vinci wasn't, you know, she wasn't a total unknown, but 300 to (laughs) 1. I mean, (laughs) yes, ludicrous, but 300 to 1, you know. And um, that's the beauty of sport, isn't it? The beauty of sport is that I will never be saying that anything's a foregone conclusion ever again. (laughs) Yeah, it is really. I mean, and uh, and I've, I've made plenty of those errors myself because and it's one of the things I yeah I love about sport is somebody can have the day of their lives and play like they've never played before and be the equal or the superior the better of one of the all-time greats because what what sets Serena and Djokovic and Nadal and Chris Everts and all these apart is that they just they have this baseline that they can just keep on delivering that you might get them one day though 
And um, that one day may be something that we're reliving in the future. That's a that's a warning. I want to end on a forward-looking note, which might step on the toes of our US Open preview show coming out in a couple of days. But I don't care. I'm I'm running this show. <laughs> Will Serena Williams play another US Open? I wouldn't have thought so. No, I don't think so. I agree. Will Novak Djokovic complete the calendar slam? Yes. David's taking a moment. Yes. I think probably less. I feel He's... sure I feel sure about question one than I do about question mm. two. It's mm. got quite a good draw. Yeah, okay, let's not step on <laughs> let's not step on our Sunday toes too much, folks. That is a little teaser of what's to come in our US Open preview, which we'll be recording on Sunday. Matt and I will be at Tennis Podcast Towers. David will be in a hotel room in Salford by then, David, or not? Correct, yes. Correct, yes. We we come to you from all the most glamorous locations in the UK. That is our that is our post pandemic life. We used to go to New York. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Oh, those were the days. You know when you know when Google reminds you Google photos one year ago today, two years ago today. Please stop doing that Google. Um yeah, but it's been good to go back to 2015. Um albeit a little bit painful because I kind of I wish Serena Williams had the calendar slam. I do. Um and it's it's particularly sad to think that, you know, we we may never see her play a Grand Slam again. We don't know. But, yeah, she is silly to... I don't quite like sort of saying, oh, she deserves a Slam because she'd deserve a, a, a calendar Slam if, if she, you know, you only deserve it if you've won it. But I don't like there being kind of any question over her greatness. And um, I, I would have loved it if she'd done it that year. But I also loved the on-court Roberta Vinci interview. And I'm glad that exists in the world for whenever anybody is having a low day so I hope you've enjoyed reliving that extraordinary match that extraordinary couple of weeks year really back in 2015 our tremendous thanks and I can't overstate this enough go to Chris Albert Lee for his guest editorship of this show and of course for his executive producership of the whole show throughout the year so thank you Chris Albert Lee we really do appreciate it thank you to Luna our lovely mascot that looks like Sia for the week we love Luna thank you to all of our mascots Scouse or Mouse or Zeus Rogue and Billie Jean King thank you for listening Um, as I've said many times we'll be back with our US Open preview show on Sunday what a US Open it is going to be and then that's it. That is the beginning of two weeks of daily slams throughout the 2021 US Open. So join us for that. We'll speak to you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 